Welcome to the Dividend Talk podcast, episode number 21. Why the balance sheet of a company is so important for us. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Dividend Talk. I'm your co-host, Engineer My Freedom, and today I'm joined with European DGI. This is a podcast where we discuss our passion for dividend growth investing with our own unique European flavor. If you're new to this channel, please hit the like button and subscribe to us, and check out our previous episodes on YouTube and Spotify. See you on the inside. Hey everyone, we have a nice little show for you here today. We're going to have a chat about one of the fundamental statements, the balance sheet, um, which is one of the three, one of the top three things you should be looking at, I suppose, when you're analysing a company. So we we have done analysis of companies before, but we just want to give you a little flavour of what we actually look for in the balance sheet and, and how we how we dissect it. But before we get into that, how are you getting on, EG Joy? I'm doing well, actually. It was a really busy week at work. Uh, this fall has been extremely busy at our company, but I'm liking it. Lots of energy there. At the same time, of course, COVID-19 is all around us. I think we can make this uh, Christmas song about it. But no, I'm feeling energized. I'm really ready for the weekend. Um, next week, there's also public holiday on Wednesday over here. So yeah, I'm actually doing really well. And lots of earnings this week again. But I'm a bit tired to talk about purely about earnings, so I'm really happy with the topic uh, from today. How about yourself? Yeah, all all good. My end. Um, a holiday midweek on a Wednesday that must be nice. Breaks up the breaks up the week quite yeah quite well. yeah definitely definitely. Man, I'm I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> ah well, hey, but um, about the news, right? That's usually our first section. So um, let me kick it off. I, I was really. Um, really surprised by the gossips i guess these are still gossips or the rumors around at&t that it's willing to uh, sell its stake in directv for for 15 billion we know that back in 2014 they bought uh, the company for 67 billion i mean you gotta be kidding right this is like less than 25 percent of what they paid for over what is it five six years yeah, imagine it's... you buy a house yeah and you need you need to impair it and write it off with seventy five percent. I mean, how would you feel? Because you still have the debt, uh, the mortgage covering your house. How would you feel? Uh, it it must be embarrassing. I want to use the word embarrassing, but it, like it must hurt those guys who made that decision because it was a pretty pretty awful decision. And uh, reading on Twitter, I think it was Investment Talk or someone mentioned that they could have bought Netflix for less money than what they bought DirecTV. And uh, man, I'd say they look back at this now and, and just wonder what were they doing? Yeah, and I, I liked Phil, I think. I think it was Phil who said like, or maybe someone else, I don't remember, but wouldn't you have loved to be the fly on the wall there just when the decision was being made? And they say, yeah, let's go for DirecTV, you know, uh, 67 billion, yeah, it's worth it, let's get it. I mean, look at it, all, all, all the... Uh, all the people watching TV, we can do because I read the 2000. I think I I, I read the press press release of the um, acquisition, so they were thinking about uh, effectively cross selling and selling bundles, right? So with the mobile phone and everything, all these packages, and they started doing that, of course, a bit in the beginning. But I mean, just the conversation there must have been so uh, so awkward. But imagine if you could have said at the time. Let's buy Netflix and have it on uh, have it in a package deal with uh, roaming, uh, twenty gigabyte uh, LTE, and then also, for instance, uh, together with the newest iPhone, that would have been a killer plan. Not with Directv. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, we, we don't know what the, what they were thinking at the time, but I'm I'm sure there's huge huge regrets, as you say, and, mm. and maybe they're just sick of it, and, and they just have this monkey on their back, and they're like, you know what, we'll take the loss, we'll take the hit. And we'll just forget about this. It never happened. We'll just pay off the debt. But yeah, well, it's um, it's it's an expensive mistake. Yes, definitely. 
Hey, what's been your news of the week? Yeah, so the, there's there's two bits of news that I, that I was looking at. So the first one is with Walgreens. Obviously, you, you know you know I like that company, but there was talks of them uh, doing a joint a joint venture with a German company called McKesson, and I believe that's now got to go ahead and, and they're going to go ahead. I'm still unsure whether it's going to be a public company or a private company or the exact details around it, but it, it does seem like a pretty good good deal for for Walgreens. So McKesson are uh, a healthcare a healthcare supply chain management co- solutions company, and they have retail pharmacy and stuff. So I think they'll work quite well together, and I'm, I'm interested to see a bit more details on how the company is going to be formed and and what they're going to do with it. But look, it's it's another step in the right direction, I think, and more positive news so hopefully they'll start driving that price price up for me um and the second one is i don't know how you feel about digital currency but this this one caught my eye because i had a conversation with my brother-in-law two weeks ago saying that i believe that they're going to try and phase out cash i believe that that it's already began it's started and then on the ecb website it just so happened they start talking about a, a digital euro and they're going to start phasing mm-hmm. in in 2021, which is, it's quite interesting to me. I have mixed feelings on it. I mean, from a, techni- a, a technology point of view, I think it's great. But then cash is king, isn't it? So yeah, I feel like you're, you're losing a little bit of control. So I, I'm a little bit on edge in it, but I'm, I'm still a little bit excited to see how they're actually going to, to play this out and how a digital currency will actually fit within our ecosystem. And but is it supposed to be on blockchain technology? I, now I, I I didn't go too much in, in detail of of tech, of the technicals behind it and how they're going to do it. I assume so, but I, I, I'm not sure. I, I'd imagine it will be. It, it make more sense for them to to go that route, but because I consider my euros already digital, they're somewhere on my iPhone, uh, yeah, on my iPhone effectively, right? Somewhere stored on a bank account. I usually don't go to an ATM to to get cash. So for me, they are digital anyway. So I, from that point of view, I think that wouldn't change a lot. Uh, it's the same as gold. When you buy a gold ETF or, or something like that, you, you never really have the gold in your house then, right? I know some people that buy physical gold. Yeah. Um, yeah, it will be interesting to see how that goes, I think. Europe often has a lot of those kind of programs where they're really investigating it. And um, I would just like to see that the euro starts to be a bit more productive and gets those projects to life and not every time uh, kill them by the back doors. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's it's something to keep an eye on. And I, I, I get what you're saying. Our generation is, and, and certainly the generations after us are so used to everything being online. But it's maybe the generation before us they don't really ha- get the grips with, with with online, so I don't know how it's going to work for everybody and how inclusive it will be. But it'll be um, be inter- it'll be interesting to watch it play out and, and just to see how they actually integrate this into our system and how it works with cash and and, and stuff. So it'll be it'll be a, a, an interesting year ahead, I think. Well, I don't want to be the party pooper, but we have only one generation less le- left ahead of us. <laughs> ahead, ahead of you i'm younger <laughs> so yeah so that's that's all my news this week nice and light so we'll move on to the, the main topic which i suppose um as i said we're going to have a look at the balance sheet and i just want to say i just want to point out that neither of us are financial advisors but we're both retail investors so this is not financial advice or anything like that this is just how we see the balance sheet and, and what we look for so if we get something wrong, feel free to tell us, but don't give out to us because, as I said, we're not, we're not professionals at this by, by any means. So I, I, I'll start. I will just start basically explaining what the balance sheet is. So I said I said earlier, it's one of the three major financial statements. So you've got the um, you got the cash flow statement, you got the income statement, and you got the the balance sheet. Three very 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 important statements, and and they look at and different things. We chose the balance sheet. We will do the other two over, I don't know, a couple of weeks or, or so. We're not quite sure, but we will cover them eventually. What does a balance sheet show you? It basically shows a company's assets. So assets are things that a company owns, like cash, inventory, property. And it shows their liability, so what they're paying out. So rent, wages, taxes, loans. 
And then if you put them together, you get what's left over, and that's the shareholders' equity. The shareholders' equity is basically what me and you, that's our portion of, of the company. We invest in the company, and that's what's left over for us. So that's basically, in a nutshell, what it is. And, and ideally, you want a company then that has more assets than liabilities. The more assets and the less liabilities they have, the more shareholder equity that, that is left over for you. So that's that's basically it, but we'll just go a little bit in depth then and we'll talk about each one and what to what to look for in them. So if we start with the assets, okay. So the, the assets are usually on the left hand side of the balance sheet. And there's a couple of things that you look for, but we'll start with the current assets in, and current assets are assets that can be converted to cash in one year or less. Um, so you have stuff like cash and cash equivalents, so your cash in hand, uh, marketable securities, inventory, and prepaid expenses. So when you're when you're analyzing for assets, what what do you tend to look for in this section with say with the cash and marketable securities? Now I don't really understand marketable securities, so you might know a little bit more than me on them. Um, Yes. Yeah, so um, let's say like that. Uh, first question: What I look into is really how much cash do they have on the balance sheet? And I think, uh, for instance, Microsoft is a really great example there, because this cash is so liquid they can usually quite easily um, use it for, for instance, share repurchases or the best one acquisitions. It gives a lot of fle flexibility uh, having a lot of cash. Think about it yourself if you. Uh, if, if from your assets, if you have a house and everything, a car, uh, these kinds of things, but also let's say 30% in cash, and then there comes a major market stock market correction in uh, like in last March, you can really buy a lot of um, uh, stocks. And if you don't have cash, you're kind of handcuffed and you cannot use that opportunity. So that's why cash is so important for, for me there. Other than that, I also look a little bit at uh, inventory, but it really uh, inventory, but it really depends on the um, I said on, on, on the sector the company operates in. So often I prefer inventory actually not to be too too high because it might be actually a negative sign for me because you want those products to be shipped and sold uh, as quick as possible. Uh, but those are actually the only two that I really look at and marketable securities, those could be, as I understand it, um, um, like for instance, some bonds or something like that that you can quickly uh, liquidate again or... or I don't know if that's the right term, but sell. So um, also that you sometimes I even uh, put them on top of the cash and cash equivalents just to get a feeling for how, how much cash is there for this uh, company. Mm. And then in terms of long-term investments then, um, so you've, you've got like your fixed assets and your intang intangible assets. And for mm -hmm. me, intang intangible assets, I look at Coca-Cola, for example, and it's the brand name more than anything that that's or that that's their asset and it's quite hard to value that and, and put that in, into context on a balance sheet so yeah. when when i'm an, analyzing a company i don't really like intangible assets to be too high because you can't convert that to cash really for me um yeah so it, it's something that i like to see but i, I don't like it too high on, on a balance sheet but here, here again, I would really recommend to compare compare companies within a sector here. For instance, if you go to the software industry and look at Microsoft, of course, they have a lot of intangible assets. I mean, their whole Windows, Azure, all these patents, everything that they have, it, it's all intangible assets. Um, and, and, and those are really important. But also pharma companies, they have a lot of R&D on there. And, and this R&D, they are typically always impairing. That's why I have always this issue with pharmaceutical companies that they every time they need their core earnings and not the gap earnings because from the core earnings, they deduct the, um, uh, the R&D impairments effectively based on how the pipeline is progressing. But those are all impairments on the intangible asset side. Um, on top of that, there is also goodwill and goodwill is the one in intangible assets that i always check straight away because that's the one i don't like all the others can be inflated right so it's always um, important to to consider but goodwill is the worst one for me because goodwill, goodwill means um that a company paid more than the 
actual enterprise value let's say uh, or the, the worth of the company at the time so they 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 pay the premium for it and then they always use synergy and blah 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 now take as an example um, we talk, spoke about direct tv not not that long ago they paid a significant amount of goodwill for direct tv and all their goodwill is poof if they sell it later really for 15 billion you can expect a really, really big hit to the balance sheet uh, upcoming for AT&T. Yeah, but, but goodwill is not always a negative sign. I, no. I mean, I, I've, no. I've, been, I've been reading Buffet a little bit, um, and I have one of these books actually that goes through the financial statements, and he believes that if you're buying a company that has a competitive durable advantage, you're not going to buy it at fair or market price. So you, are, you you do expect to buy buy it at a premium. The problem is, as you said, if they're buying companies such, a, such as DirecTV that clearly don't have a durable competitive advantage, that's when it becomes a problem yeah. to me. So it's, it's, so it's, ever, it's yeah, yeah it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it definitely does depend on on the company that they're buying and, and, and how they integrate yeah. that company and how it fits with them. So what I typically do, and this is just a rule of thumb or back of the napkin, for me, when Goodwill is more than 10% of the uh, asset side of the balance sheet, I want to study it more. I want to understand how was that Goodwill created over time. Yeah. I know that this is not uh, uh, probably the best uh, accounting uh, approach, but it helps me to, to when I'm scanning a balance sheet to quickly um, to quickly dive deeper because everything more than 10% means that you're paying more than 10% let's say for your assets and then i'm wondering like to your point okay so was this then a high quality companies that they've been acquiring for which it was worth to pay a little premium on top of that or or is there something else going on here and 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 usually such a rule thump really helps me here yeah no it's it's, it's good to have a rule of thumb especially as retail investors as we said Time is of the essence. I mean, we, we can't study these like the professionals can. So to have a, a, a little rule of thumb like that to say, look, if it's over 10%, give an extra bit of detail is, is pretty sweet. So then we have also the liabilities part of the uh, balance sheet. Would you like to say a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, liabilities is basically what the company owns to, to outside parties. So you typically want these to be on the low side, don't you? You don't want them them too high and again you've got current liabilities so these are debts that are due within the within a year and then you've got long-time liabilities which are due any point after that after that year so typical examples i suppose of current liabilities would be your dividends that are paid you've got um bank indebtedness you've got interest and wages and accounts payable so they're typically what, what you look for on it and then you've obviously got your your long-term debts which are interest and principal bonds and and something then maybe i i'm not too sure on it but there's a deferred tax liability and maybe you might give a little explanation on, on what that is but i see quite a bit um and it's i, I don't know it's, it's obviously the tax being put off a little bit down the line but Yes. So what I, uh, how I understood this specifically, uh, remember that America did this uh, kind of, um, I think it was in late 2017, that they allowed companies to have overseas money um, uh, being uh, transferred to the United States um, as kind yeah. of this uh, tax-friendly uh, was a policy. I believe that a lot of, uh, I, th I think it was Apple, but don't shoot me when I'm wrong here, but I believe that companies like Apple had a lot of money overseas, which they had a potential liability on tax on, and I believe that was the part of the balance sheet. But I'm not hundred percent sure anymore. Hmm. Um, yeah, but think about think about your own um, how is it your own home situation. If you have tax due, and you're you're pushing it out uh, to pay that, and 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 the local IRS, for instance, you can get a deal with them to pay it later. Then probably that would go to also to the long-term liability uh, point. And I know, for instance, um, a friend of mine who has a company um, who got into tax troubles because of international uh, business within Europe, and this person now needs to pay a lot of tax still to the um, to the local IRS here. And I'm sure that this is in the deferred tax liability because he cannot pay everything off at once. So they made a deal together with the tax office to to pay it over the upcoming years. Okay. 
And and would this typically be with companies that struggle for cash flow, or would there be a genuine reason why they'd want to do this? Um, so in the case of my friend, it's a cash flow issue that they can't pay off all that debt at once. Um, other than that, I don't know. So, yeah. Okay. I look more at the personally at the long-term debt and about uh, and at pension fund liabilities and such uh, because there's always some trouble around <laughs> pension funds. Yeah, and we, we, we'll see that. We'll, you probably should give an example later of, of UPS, mm. which obviously has huge trouble with pensions. Yeah. So it's, it'd be good to um, explain that a little bit further. And, and then the, I suppose the, the last bit of the balance sheet will be the shareholders equity and i suppose this is the most important number isn't it on, on it you're looking to see how much is left over when you when you subtract the liabilities from the assets um so uh, i mean i don't really have a figure in mind or a percentage in mind i just like to see that that equity is going up over mm -hmm. time i just i just track it over the last yeah. five five years and 10 years and just to see that it's gone up in incrementally because you don't really want the, the liabilities climbing more every year you'd, you'd like to see that their assets and that they're actually making money on that but isn't it uh, really nice when you think about it we are part of the uh, fire movement right uh, financial independence ret retire early and one of the things that many people track on a, on a monthly basis or or quarterly yearly basis is our net worths yeah so literally shareholders equity is for me just net worth they we should just we should just uh uh write up uh, i said create a petition to the uh, people that invent a uh, gap and everything and just tell them to to change it to net worth because that would resonate much better with us because that's what it is so we want to grow the net worth of ourselves but also of the company so our portfolio that we accumulate with dividend stocks eventually end up in our net worth so the sum of the net worths of um of, of our companies should be growing and then we will be growing also in net worth is the idea right yeah yeah no that's that's a great way to look at it it, it is essentially the network of, of the company and you're right if if a retail investor like us was to see net worth of a company you'd definitely pay attention to that it'd be the first exactly probably, it'd be the first thing you, you'd look for on that yeah and then and you know that's interesting because maybe it's good to mention there you have to you have the accounting post uh, which is called retained earnings and retained earnings is typically um, um, the earnings that you take from the from the uh, income statement so if you think about how the income statement is connected to the balance sheet the profits that the company makes or the money that it earns goes into the retained earnings and when it makes a loss it deducts from the retained earnings so that's that's why you will find it back uh, uh, when you wonder where does the income go to on the balance sheet okay so maybe we could um so take take some of those things right what we just discussed and then uh, we were talking a bit about what we we're looking at so we spoke about goodwill already for me pension liabilities like i mentioned are also really important because pension liabilities are effectively debt that you that you owe to your uh current employees in the future yeah so it's an obligation you have in the future to pay them and um, I will show soon show the um, I said the example of UPS, but in my opinion, this can really bring some companies into trouble. Also, think about General Electric and such. Uh, if there's too much pension outstanding, and specifically when the pension is not fully covered, yeah, uh, uh, compared to um, what the future obligations are. But then um, maybe it's now a good time to connect this to some of the popular um, ratios that, that uh, uh, people in the FIRE movement use, because we often hear debt to equity as an example. And so why does that need to be low, right? So I prefer personally below 60%. Again, it depends a little bit on the sector that um, uh, companies are in. But this comes to the point of, again, having um flexibility yes so you can increase your debt in, in 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 bad times to make use of opportunities as an example and if you have too much debt on your balance sheet your credit rating will be lower will be also for us personally if we then go to the bank and we will not be able to get something so if i would be going into real estate real estate investment here locally and i would like to buy a, a flat for for renting it out 
if I'm fully fully maxed out on my debt, they will not borrow me money. Yeah. yeah, so that's where the credit scores come in. Hence, the debt to equity ratio. I prefer to see that uh, rather on the low side, so not more not more than sixty percent for a company. And and when you're calculating that, are you using the long term assets and long term liabilities, or are you using current assets and current liabilities? Um, I'm using long term debt long -term, typically, yeah. um, unless there's a too big deviation uh between current and 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 long if there's something specific but usually long-term debt yeah yeah i i should point out that i, I use a website here called uh, readyratio.com and it's 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 fantastic you you put in a company so you can put in ups so you can put in mm -hmm. any company and it will compare each ratio against the industry Mm -hmm. And then in the next column, also against the whole index, the whole S P nice. five hundred. So it's 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 really nice. So I don't have a hard and fast rule of under sixty percent. Generally, the lower the better. I, I do like it really low, mm -hmm. but I will check against the industry. And if it's below the in industry, I'm I'm generally happy. And yeah. obviously, if it's a if it's above the industry, then it's it's a red flag for me. Well, it's, it would be great if you share the link. Then we'll put it in the description of the uh, podcast. Super. Yep. So another one that I uh, typically look at is the current ratio. And the current ratio is current assets divided by current liabilities. So think about having, uh, I don't know, uh, 10,000 euro on your uh, cash account. Yeah. And you have, for instance, uh, 8,000 of, uh, or let's say 10,000 of um, credit card debt. Yeah. That is due within the next year. That means that you would have a current ratio of one. So I prefer current uh, ratios again uh, higher. That means that I effectively have more cash than than that I have uh, short-term uh, debt, and this really uh, gives a lot of fle flexibility here. Because again, if you quickly want to do something, quickly want to make uh, use of opportunities, then you can really uh, use that cash, and you also don't get too quickly into trouble, uh, short-term trouble, if you need to pay some unforeseen bills or something like that and the same applies to companies here yeah I, I think google is a really good company to look at here to check out their current ratio the last time i checked it was above three which is mm -hmm. it, which yeah. is crazy so, so that's basically saying that their current assets is three times greater than their liabilities so if they got into trouble as you said and, and they needed to pay all their liabilities they would still have three times enough, yeah. enough money left over so it's it is a really really important number and um, like you i do like it over it's definitely needs to be above one anything above one mm -hmm. is is certainly a red flag but i do like it to be 1.5 um just to give it that little bit of flexibility yeah and then um another one that i find really important is the return on equity there's the famous buffett uh, indicator i think that uh, that m many books are written about and this is effectively um, uh, uh, net income divided by the shareholders' equity part, so the net worth part of the balance sheet. And and here you would like to see, let's say, if it depends on your target, right? What you invest in. But for me, I'm looking at a 10% uh, genuinely, usually, or that's that's what I prefer, 10% uh, or above. It's not always the case. So sometimes you need to look at the uh, catalyst for the company if they can uh, move up from there. But this would be like actually telling you that you will be making a 10% uh, return on your net worth every year, right? And this, this is, for me, a really important yardstick as a company because many others can be easily manipulated. Uh, return on equity is a bit more difficult unless, you know, return on equity is not always so useful when you have, for instance, a lot of share buybacks going on in the background. And I'll show one soon, also an example there because it might really squeeze uh, I, I said negatively impact that ratio and then you need to adjust adjust a little bit the numbers you use to come to a reliable return on equity yeah and, and yeah. it is also a good one to compare against the peers in a particular industry and sector because i mean you want to get the best bang for your buck yeah, don't you so exactly i mean it, it's, it is a great yardstick as you said to compare against other companies to see what they're earning over a period of time and, and what you expect to earn so yeah, no, it's, it is an important one. Again, like that, I don't have a hard and fast figure. I, I do just compare against the industry, and, and I like it. I like it to be yeah. around what the industry is making. So if, yeah. if it's below the industry, then it's, it's it, again, it's a red flag for me. Yeah.
So the, for me, there's just one issue with the balance sheet by solely looking alone at the balance sheet is that it's a snapshot in time. It doesn't say you anything else there. So what I typically do and what I also like is when companies put uh, multiple years of the balance sheet at once and compare them. Usually they do the current year with the former year, but I actually prefer the last five years because then I can see the trends. For instance, for me, the trend in long-term debt is important. Uh, I, I prefer it to be conservatively, if it grows really conservatively and less than the whole balance sheet, let's say, uh, as a total, because that means it goes more to the uh, uh, owner's equity, as an example. I would like to see the cash trend um, uh, there. I'm not saying it should be only going up. I just want to see what the company is doing with their cash, because if they acquire companies with it, then I'm, I'm more than happy with it. And I want to see, of course, the owner's equity or the net worth trend of the uh, company. Those are three really important for me to uh, where I want to compare them year over year and preferably for the last five years. Yeah, I agree. Um, so we might we might just talk through some examples and, and maybe the mm -hmm. UPS. I know you have a, a slide here that will show on YouTube. Um, but we have UPS and the pension liabilities. If you just want to talk through what you're going to see there. Yeah. So UPS is a really interesting company because they have a total balance sheet yeah, of 57 billion. Now, just alone in 2019, 10.6 billion, so around 20% is consumed by pension liabilities. Now, honestly, I don't think it's for any company uh, a good a good shape to be in that you have so many future liabilities to, to current employees um of such an amount which cover 20 percent of your balance sheet and 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 these are two red flags for me generally it means like this is a this is a liability that usually just keeps increasing by the by the how is it the deals or the agreements or the contracts that you have with the employees right uh, for for inflation compensation and such um, secondly, I don't know if you give a good sign to your employees uh, that, for instance, your company might be at risk by, for instance, having the pension funds underfunded. And this is exactly the case because the funding ratio at the moment stands at 87% for UPS. That means that they are underfunding the, the, the pensions funds. Now, people, for instance, in the Netherlands, they hear all the time in the news like that the pension funds in the Netherlands, they need to have a ratio higher than 100%. Otherwise, they need to, um, I said, ask from the uh, from the current employees to pay more to pay more to uh, contribution, or they will get less money when they are retired. Think about that. That they are always talking about 110 percent. UPS is at 87 percent. So what has been happening on the free cash flow um, uh, the last few years? In two 2017, they paid 7.2 billion to the pension funds which meant that their free cash flow was negative 3.7 billion. Here they do some financial engineering again because they then uh, report the adjusted free cash flow, which they then comes out as a positive 3.5 billion. Please don't look to that. It's cash. It's gone. It's, it's, it's just manipulation to take that out of the um, free cash flow. In 2019, 2019, they paid an additional 2 billion contribution to the um, uh, uh, pension fund this is almost 10 billion over the course of three years and and this is a shitload of money which is not going to the shareholders which is not increasing the net worth of the shareholders and and this is exactly um, why i pay attention to that and this is also the reason why ups for for several years went nowhere i mean not solely due to the pension funds but uh, because, of course, business operations is the most important, right, um, here. But what you see is that, uh, to the point earlier, when you have a lot of liabilities, it, it reduces your flexibility to do things, for yeah. instance, acquisitions. And we also know that their credit rating went a little bit lower. Actually, that was in the credit report actually mentioned to, as a major reason, the, the pension funds. So UPS is, is a company that struggles um, uh with that yeah and it's it's a trend that you'll see i know you have a, a three-year snapshot here but if you go back 10 years you can see that repeating itself over and over and over again i, I think again they were negative in 2014 as well so it's it definitely will be a concern to me and 
I mean, I, I looked at UPS balance sheet recently bef- before we did this podcast, and it's horrendous. It's it's really hard to get a good judge on on what they have and, and where it's going. Free cash flow is up and down. It's it's yeah. all over the place, and certainly not something I would be looking for in a company. Yeah, you need to. I mean, we talk numbers now here based on the balance sheet, but think about the real world implications. This is a reason why companies like UPS want to have as much as possible contractors. Because with contractors, they don't get these pension obligations. What does it mean to society? Society doesn't like all this geek work naturally because they don't have psychological safety and and they are not building their future. Because what, what really happens, the pension obligation transfers from the company to the employee. Yeah. So the employee is subsidizing and the employee is probably already on a low relatively low salary that they cannot for instance pay 10 to 15 percent of their salary into every month into a pension fund so this is really like just shifting the obligation to the uh, uh, to the employee and i think uber and other uh, those companies really benefit from that and i think this has impact to society and that's why there's those companies are often in the news regarding to using contractors over employees Okay, and then we might look at AT and T, which is another maybe General Electric as well. But the two really popular companies, I suppose, in, in Ireland on Twitter and, and stuff like that. So we might have a little talk about the goodwill portion on this, and we and we know there we just had a chat about the acquire Direct TV and stuff. So yeah. we'll just talk talk through that a little bit as well. So in this case, AT and T. Um, over 2019 had a goodwill of 146 billion remember that the total balance sheet is 550 billion so we're talking here about now out of my head 27 28 percent of the balance sheet being consumed by goodwill that's a lot of a lot for those kinds of intangible assets yeah and and this is i think this is the biggest number from almost from all the other account accounts in the uh, in, in in the how you say it in the long term asset part. So most of it goes to goodwill from that point of view. Now then, if you think about if they would sell goodwill, what that will do yeah, uh, to the to the balance sheet, it would shrink it with at least forty billion or something like that, and that would again have a large impact on their um i said on their stakeholders equity which is still to be fair to the company at 200 billion at the moment so it is not straight away putting it in minus or something like that um but it would have a large impact and i think credit rating for at&t could also be again at risk to be uh, lowered but you know let's look then at uh, a company that not too long had this issue general electric back in 2018 they they had to write off 22 billion in, in 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 goodwill yeah 22 billion so at the time they had 83 or 84 billion in goodwill on the balance sheet in 2017 then they uh, wrote off 22 billion so their goodwill became 60 billion actually the balance sheet overall that year it was a horrible year went 60 billion lower but what happened there as well is that their let's call it their net worth yeah reduced from 73 billion to 50 billion which is a really 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 substantial uh, so imagine you lost 30 percent of your net worth in one year and goodwill was a really large contributor to that that's what happened here 30 30 30 percent of net worth poof gone because of impairments yeah, and and this is why, and and we we all remember in General Electric back in 2018, they also had the dividend cut and everything. It that was a kitchen sink here, all came yeah. together, and these are these kinds of impairments that you really don't want to have. And and often impairments they go that they, they go by the back door out. You don't really see them because there's strong income, a strong in, income statement behind it, which covers it up a little bit, so you don't really see it. Yeah? yeah because then you get the retained earnings minus the impairment usually you have more retained earnings than impairment so it's still a net positive uh result but general electric went bad and i'm uh that's why 
um, I'm not uh, increasing my position in AT&T because I think this kind this kind of stuff worries me uh, with DirecTV. Yeah. And, and it's interesting then that you, you mentioned retained earnings because that's your link back to the income statement. Exactly. Um, um, so I, I, I know you have so, uh, a sheet here for, for Starbucks that has negative retained earnings, which might be interesting how that actually how yeah. that plays out. So the negative earnings um, from Starbucks is actually since recently. And there's one really, really simple explanation for that, which is called share buybacks. So I think they in 2017 or 2018, they went from uh, a positive retained earnings to negative retained earnings because just in the, um, yeah, it was from 2018 to 2019 because just in 2019 alone, they bought back nine and a half billion of stocks, which I think is even, uh, poof, I, I, I need to, I don't, yeah, they had at the moment they had a net earnings of three and a half bill, billion. So just in two, 2019, they bought three times more stock back than they earned in, in 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 the same year, which meant that it went negative in the retained earnings. And that's why sometimes on the balance sheet you see negative um, shareholder equity and negative net worth. And that's what Starbucks uh, has actually, because Starbucks in 2019 on the balance sheet had a negative um, uh, shareholder equity, and they call it not equity anymore. They call it shareholder deficit mm. of of seven to eight billion, and that's really interesting. So their uh, total liabilities are 37 billion, and then minus the um, uh, or let's say plus the the negative uh, shareholder equity comes to a total balance sheet of 29 billion. And remember again, by itself, this might not be such a problem if you believe in the earnings power from um, Starbucks going forward. But we know they've been buying also back again in 2020 and, and increasing the dividends. So the question is, is this sustainable? What I, what I honestly believe is that Starbucks is really propping up the share price at the moment, and this is not sustainable. So if growth starts to slow, for instance, by the expansion of new stores in China or something like that, I think their uh, dividend growth will be at risk. Uh, I think we will see really slow growth, and they will need many, many years of strong income and cash flow to start recovering the balance sheet uh, a bit back again. So they're really, how is it? They're really taking their future er earnings. They are taking them to today to reward the shareholders today. But it's really an, a, a loan on the future. And that's how I, I look at it. And that's also the reason why I'm, I never uh, started a position in Starbucks um, for that reason. I have it in my desired portfolio. Um, because I still think they can get away with it with such a strong brand, but for that, the I think I mean I'm looking at the share price. There are fifty dollars, and I think it's around eighty-five or ninety. So for me, it doesn't even come close. Yeah, you you need to have a strong like a strong feeling that the company can keep increasing their earnings over the next ten years. Uh, yeah. It's 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 a risky strategy, and you can understand it if they want to reward their shareholders now, but. Uh, I'm not so sure. Um, I've never been too sure on, on Starbucks, as, uh, as I said before. I know they they are look they are a good company and a great brand, but how can they keep growing at the rate they're growing? I I'm, I'm not sure. So um, it, it's a company that I, I've never invested in and probably won't. Um, but yeah, it's um, too too risky. So I hope to our listeners, we um, uh, some of you might actually know much better than us about the balance sheet. But I also know that we have a quite a large following that are relatively new to investing, maybe just for a year or a year or two. So I hope we um, clarified a little bit about how we look at the balance sheet and also gave you three, I think, really good examples of companies where if you now yourself open up the 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 annual report look at their balance sheet you will probably see what we mean we will put the pictures also in the youtube video for for clarification and i just hope that by sharing some of our knowledge of what we learned over the last year we also help you a little bit to spot those things easier when you're doing your own analysis yeah. 
And of course, if you have any questions and, and you need any guidance, just reach out to either of us and we're more than happy to pass on what we know. Cool. So we move on to the listener questions. Um, and the first one is actually a pretty decent question considering the topic, and it's from <laughs> e Eli Snowball. And he asked us, what do you think of the practice of issuing shares to pay the dividend, which is very common in Europe? So I'm not a fan of it, uh, to be uh, to be straight uh, here. I prefer them to just pay it with the cash flow straight away. Um, Eloy Snowball responded a little bit to the practice of Danone doing this and Shell. So I looked up on Danone and what I saw is that the shareholders actually voted for this practice. So they voted for share dilution, I guess, to, prepare, to protect cash a little bit um, and, and the balance sheet. But, you know, it, it's like left pocket, right pocket for me. Um, here what i can tell you about shell i really liked it in 2016 because they were preserving the balance sheet at that time as well they did some dilution and then later used share buybacks uh, for it but what was the nice thing about shell because it was dilution really there i didn't pay dividend tax on it because if you think about it if they pay you dividends in cash yeah you need to tax but if they pay, pay you dividends in stock and the stock is uh, really share dilution, like pure share dilution, then you already paid for it by watering it down. So hence why in this case, uh, with the shell shares at that time, you didn't need to pay dividend tax during those few quarters, which was for me good because I could, um, I said, um, get didn't have a tax impact and trusting on the company to to use the balance sheet later to buy back you know of course this year they've got a dividend so it didn't last too long but um if there is no dividend tax if there are no tax implications i like it otherwise i prefer it just to go straight from the cash flow yeah so, and then well spotted about the known i didn't spot it when i was reading the annual report and then um, maybe this question for you from phil there are four characteristics but you can only choose three what would you what would you choose based on your dream company one they have a they have a mode uh, really strong mode two they have strong growth three trustworthy management four a solid dividend history i seen this question come in earlier from phil and i was like oh man that's a that's a that's a good question can i choose all four no <laughs> i i suppose i i definitely want them to have a strong you know, like a wide like strong a strong moat you you want a company that has as i said competitive durable advantage and and the ability to to grow over time so i think the first two are, are definitely top of my list strong mode and strong growth need, need both of them and then i've i've been i've been racking my brains over trustworthy management or, or solid dividend history it's it's a tough one with, with the management. Management's change, so it, it depends on how are they untrustworthy, are they on who are they untrustworthy to. But I think it's important to have good management in there over over a solid dividend history. I'm more concerned about the history or the dividend going forward than looking back. Of course, you do like them to have a good a good history, but if you don't have management that you can trust them, and we've seen this, we've talked about companies yeah. recently where management have gone in and companies have have gone gone downhill and it's it's really really important to have have good management in there so for me it's a b and c yeah i would say the same okay next question then from centrino any idea why in this week of the us usa election i think there's uh, voting for a president i believe this week i can't uh, so, remember something something's happening over there i don't something know like that yeah and and the votes are uh, counting uncertainty the days were green instead of red so why why did we see lots of growth this week in the stock market that's really the question yeah it's 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 crazy i, I was expecting maybe a little bit more red i suppose when it, when it started it looked like biden was was going to be a clear winner early on you could see there was a bit of red in the market then there was a rally from trump and the nasdaq grew three percent and it's pretty much grown since then. I, I, I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure. I, I, I think, I think there's a little bit more certainty about who the president's going to be. I think it's quite clear right now that Biden is going to be the new president. Markets like certainty, 
And at the moment, we may be seeing an uptick in that. I do expect some sort of pullback. I do expect, uh, you mentioned the Trump premium before, I do expect some sort of catalyst to, to drive it down, maybe 10%. But at the moment, I think the stock market just likes the certainty of knowing that this won't be drawn out for weeks and weeks and weeks. It's going to be over pretty pretty soon, I think. And maybe that's why it's green instead of red. Who, who knows? But that's that's my so, guess. So my, my theory here is that um, last week when we had lots of red days, I think investors were expecting Biden to win. And now that it is a really close call, and they know that Biden can't even, you know, do anything with, for instance, the former tax cuts from Trump. If, they, for instance, they have more senators than the Republicans, he cannot do anything. So I think that's probably relieved the market a little bit with such a close call. They know that it's like almost 50 50, whoever gets the president. Uh, but if it's Biden, he cannot really do a lot. That, that's my feeling here. And that was probably a relief to the stock market. But I also think that COVID 19 played a role with all the lockdowns on top of that, uh, which then is good for the growth stocks, which we saw rallying really this week. Yeah. Okay. He, he did ask a second question. and It's any idea why geo stock keeps dropping 5 to 10% every day? No. I, I, I don't know too much about the company. I, I believe they are, uh, they are a, a REIT, Real Estate Investment Trust. But I'm not. It's not someone that I follow or, or know anything about, really. So I'm I'm not sure. I I would suggest maybe check. I I, I don't know what markets doing. I don't know mm -hmm. what they rent is. So it may be worth checking out the overall industry and seeing is there any headwinds in the area at the minute that's causing the drop. Yeah. Okay, and then we had a question then from Investingly, and he asked, "Do we have any opinion on?" Rio Tinto. Yes, I have an opinion on it for what it's worth. <laughs> so I've got some, still some shares in uh, BHP Billiton, yeah, uh, which is a strong competitor of Rio Tinto. And I was looking into Rio Tinto a few years ago, but then one of the dams broke, I think somewhere in, um, in South America, if I remember correctly. And it was just a mess. And that's where I saw that management at the time was really with the head in the sand. And that was the time I told myself, okay, to the earlier point, trust for free management, I'm staying away from this company. Um, having said that, also my experience with BHP over the last four or five years, I don't like the sector. I will probably stay away from it in general. I know they have juicy dividends, but this is these are... These are not the companies that uh, I feel investing in generally. Um, and then we have another question then from uh, Sego Investor. When do you buy companies that are always expensive? The likes of Johnson Johnson or, or Nestle, company no premium companies that always seem to be expensive. When when would you typically buy them? Buy the dip. So I, I, I just bought Johnson & Johnson on, on 135 at a 3% yield. I think Johnson & Johnson is actually not so expensive, but if you look at their yield, you might not be satisfied with a yield under 3%. Yeah, so I wouldn't... I wouldn't um, I'd suggest a little bit maybe the yield trap here, uh, here because if you look at j and I don't find them so expensive. Nestle, I find that the company which I analyzed, I want to stay away from it. I don't like the direction where it's going. It's it it it, it has hardly proper uh, top line growth, and yeah, uh, you need to read my post on my blog to see why why not. Procter and Gamble, I think this is a company that typically goes through seasons. Uh, one and a half year ago or two years ago, you could pick it up for really really attractive prices. I think sixty seventy dollars. So I think with some companies, you just need to wait a little bit. But Johnson & Johnson, I would honestly say, I find it attractively valued now. Yeah, right. between, 100, between 130 and 150, you could really initiate a position, buy some small trenches, not, not too much, but just nibbling in. It's, it's, yeah. it's a good price at the moment, Johnson & Johnson. Yeah, and I, I can see the point. Sometimes it is hard to get through that psychology of companies that look expensive. They may not be expensive, but they may look expensive. And I had that with, with Visa. I, I always mm -hmm. see them as being expensive or, or overpriced. And they just 
yeah, they always predictably have good earnings, good solid growth, and the price keeps going up as a result. And I end up missing out then on what I could have bought six months ago because I, I've hesitated. What what I do and what I tend to do is is like you buying small tr- tranches. I, I've started to do that with Microsoft, for example. I, I have a price I want them to get down to, which is under 185. And, and then I'll buy a chunk of them. But what I'm doing now at the moment is I'll, I'll buy a couple every week or you know maybe once a month, buy some and, and try and average in and, and buy the dip. As as you said, Phil, I love that one. But it's 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 hard from a psych, psychology point of view but you got to remember these are premium companies and are yes. companies that johnson johnson for example you you buy them you lock them up you forget about them and you come back in 30 years time and they're still there they're they're those sort of companies that they'll be there for forever and ever so it's probably worth pay, paying a, a premium now because they will continue to be there for for decades okay then we have uh, louis so let's um, let's take this question what do you think about defense stock like for instance general dynamics i mean d- defense stocks have a place in, in your portfolio i don't particularly focus on them any more than than any other sector or any other type of stocks because i look for value and mm-hmm. depending on on where the value is and, and where what it is at the time it might be defense stocks in times of uncertainty you might see more more value there or you you may see value somewhere else so for me it's it's not a not a huge deal you you can consider johnson and johnson maybe in as a defensive stock for example yeah. I, I don't i don't pay i don't pay too much attention to it i just look for value in the market at a particular time and depending on cycles and and different elements like covid different sectors become more apparent and that's where I, I put my money so for me um, because I believe that he also means with defense stock like uh, stocks that uh, because general dynamics is such a stock uh, from the military yeah that that uh, selling guns yeah oh, exactly yeah. yeah so I mean I don't own them um, my wife would probably not agree but I see them in the c- category of sin stocks like tobacco Honestly, if general dynamic would be a really, really uh, good value, I might consider it. But you know, I'm, I'm a hypocrite when it comes to um, when it comes to sin stocks. So I don't want banks. Probably, I wouldn't really feel comfortable with um, you know um, little boys uh, carrying a gun and knowing that I'm earning from it. But I have no issue at all with um, smoking and these kinds of things or pharma stocks with high prices so i'm really a hypocrite i know that um so yeah uh, from from that perspective we spoke about ethics before and i think i mentioned for me it, it doesn't it doesn't come into it i mean you mentioned there are little guys carrying guns and that's going to happen whether you invest in that company or not yeah people smoke and people are going to smoke whether you invest in that in that company or not so I, I tend to stay away from the ethics side of it. Don't shoot me, but I'm here to make make money and and to build my retirement fund, and that's that's generally what I, what I look for. Of course, you would like to cut out all all those bad things, but they're there. They happen, so I I have no problem investing in in companies like that. Yeah. Uh, really quickly, then Louis had one more question, which I think is interesting. Is uh, do we have any uh, expectations around the minimum dividend yields? Typically, when I'm when I'm doing fundamental analysis and and I have it a lot of it automated, but I I look for one point five times the S and P whatever the dividend mm-hmm. yield is at that yeah. time, and that's my base point. It doesn't mean I don't choose companies underneath that level. It's just a, it's just a, a quick screener, like for example. Visa, for example, if they were underneath, if they were one percent, you know they're still high growth. There is always ex- exceptions, but for the majority of the time, I do tend one point five percent above the S and P. Kind of keeps me happy. Yeah. So for me, it needs to be a really, 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 really special company. If I would pay less, uh, if I would buy a company with less than two point seven five percent yield, I put that there a little bit because. Otherwise, it means that I need to pay more of my salary to reach my retirement goals. 
and it will really slow down my retirement plan. So it needs to be a really special company to uh, to go down that threshold. Uh, preferably, I always said three dot twenty five percent. I reduced it to two dot seventy five percent because of all this money printing that's happening, stocks inflated. Um, so two dot seventy five now, and but I could buy below only when it's a really special company. Okay, then we have Eduardo Garcia. Um, are there any other holdings outside of Berkshire Hathaway from Uncle Warren uh, that any of us would be interested in? Nothing comes to mind for me. No? For me, Johnson no. & Johnson. If there's one example of a holding company, it's Johnson & Johnson. Um, I, I know it, it sounds awkward because I think um, what he's referring to, Eduardo, is, is like, like someone like Warren Buffett that is really investing, right? But if you look at um, Johnson Johnson, it's a pure holding company for me, pure holding company. And, and there are more of such companies that give a lot of independence to the companies uh, that are part of the group. And, and we have also some uh, Euro European companies here. I believe Unilever has this as well. And and there there are quite some companies that structure themselves as as a holding and and they call themselves even a holding company. So yeah. don't make the mistake that this is only a rich billionaire or something like that. But Johnson Johnson for me is a really good example of a pure holding company. Oh, good stuff. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Okay, thanks to everyone for the questions, guys. Um, great questions again. Really make us make us think and put us through our paces. So appreciate all of them. So we move on to the next section, um, which will be the stock pick. We, we got some feedback on this actually from, from Dividend Dane, and he was he was right. He said we weren't giving this the attention that that it kind of deserved. We were picking Danone maybe two or three times and and companies like that. So he made us a few suggestions, and I think we're going to take him up on it. And I'm going to pick a stock this week that maybe that I won't buy or recommend, but it's a, a company that it's, it's an Irish-based company this week, and might be a company that you don't know anything about and it'll be interesting for people to maybe go and look them up and, and see what they're about we're going to try and not pick the same stock every week we'll we'll call it the denone rule so we'll try and stay away from picking stocks consecutively and just try to give i suppose a bit of a european flavor and try and choose stocks that maybe people are not aware of or may find interesting so I'm going to start this week with, as I said, an Irish stock called Smurfit Kappa Group. So their ticker is ISE for the Irish Stock Exchange, and it's SK3. So just a small bit of a background about them. They are a mid-cap company, so they have a market cap of 8 billion. So mid-caps generally have between, I think it's 2 and 10 billion. So they're right at the upper end of that. And they are a packaging company, so they serve companies like Danone and um, P&G. So they have a huge international presence, actually. There's lots and lots of companies. So I just gave two examples of, of companies that they serve. They operate in three main segments. So the first segment is their eSmart e segment. And this really guides companies through 12 areas and how to optimize their e-retail process which is quite important these days getting yourself online and, and building an online presence so they take companies and, and guide them through that process the second segment then is supply smart and that really then helps companies to optimize their supply chain which again can be quite important and then the last one is called shell smart and this is if you think about it when you walk into a shop you walk into your alley you walk into your little and they have products in particular places for a reason everything is designed for a reason and it grabs your attention so they really do help companies and, and design this and optimize this to increase their sales which which to be honest i find really interesting and i know there was huge studies done on on little and aldi and they even moved the section when you walk in you walk in and you, you walk into the breads and the smell hits you and your fresh bread and cookies and you just automatically draw and you, and, and you buy them so it's it's really interesting and segment to be involved in and they, they seem to do quite well and I, I think their two largest customers are little and aldi actually which is which is quite good so we just have a little look at their financial side they've been paying dividends 
since 2011. Now, with Irish companies and, and probably most European companies, dividends is not their top priority. So they have cut the dividend before, which would be a warning sign for me. They caught it during the last financial crash, which was 2011. But since then, they've continued to pay and continued to grow. The corn price is roughly 34, 35 euro, which gives them a decent dividend yield of 3.37%. And they're really conservative with their payout ratios. So it was 45% from their earnings, but only 10% of their free cash flow. So there's there's plenty of room for them to to keep paying dividends if if they want to. Now I have mentioned it's it's not their primary primary concern, so I wouldn't be surprised to see them cut it again. But the potential is there for them to to continue to pay it. I had a look at their their last earnings, and they they're, they're showing solid growth year on year. They had a growth of three percent three percent in Europe, but also in America they're growing very very strongly. I think it was eleven percent over the last this this year compared to last year so it's it's quite a quite an interesting company i would recommend people look into them a little bit more the financials look really really good they have a strong balance sheet as you said that free cash flow is growing constantly plenty of room for growth the only thing that concerns me is they are not, it's not their main concern i i could see him cutting the dividend again if if we run into it, another financial crash or something like that but look, it's a really interesting company and I would, I would definitely recommend checking them out and let me know what you think. Thank you. That was really cool. I never heard of the company. And honestly, if I would ever see the name, I would even skip it, skip it because Smurf um, in Dutch means these, these blue little uh, animals uh, from this French cartoon, the, the shrooms, I think. And so, <laughs> so it's a really interesting story. Uh, yeah, man. Yeah, Pretty if, nice if, one. If you Google top dividend paying companies in Ireland, I imagine that would be top three there's there's not many that pay uh, mm-hmm. there's maybe four or five and and this would be one so they will be one oh. of the better ones in in ireland nice good one so you you put the bar high for my next uh, week's uh, stock pick thank you for that <laughs> <laughs> okay so i think we are coming to the end of the show this was a long one i think we we spent quite some time on the the balance sheet also to to you know sharing our knowledge sharing is caring and hopefully for us, it's also nice to do some um, um, some differentiation in topics, right? Uh, we did a lot of stock stock analysis, so now we went a little bit into the uh, in, into the, maybe a bit the dry stuff to really educate ourselves, and also uh, hopefully we could we could inspire you as well with uh, with this. But yeah, it went quick, so um, I think it's just time to uh, say goodbye to again to our listeners and uh, prepare for the week and. Uh, uh, have a great uh, podcast again next next week. Perfect. See you all next week, guys. Thanks a million.